Today's read, Midnight and the Meaning of Love by Sister Soldier, Part 3, Korean Drama, Chapter 23, Identity. We left Seoul, South Korea with Akimi's grandmother riding in the car on Thursday, the day after Chiasa shot Makoto in the eye. The second time she had shot him, by the way. We were four people together, yet we were strangers to one another. All outsiders, all foreigners. The North Korean grandmother was slim but sturdy with a face that had a pronounced bone structure, making her appear serious like she was, and revealing the struggles and victories that made up the story of her living. Her hair was jet black, soft, and styled with a precise short cut that made her look and feel feminine, even with her strong bone structure. She wore expensive, gold-rimmed glasses with no tint. Her eyes were dark, big, and observant. When I looked into them, I saw softness, there had to be softness inside of her, I thought to myself. After all, she had given birth to Ju Yoon, who had given birth to my wife, Akimi. Her daughter and her granddaughter were both stunning by anyone's standard. She was a cool older woman who didn't let on her true feelings about riding in a car with her Japanese-Korean granddaughter, Akimi, who she had just met this week, or Akimi's half-Japanese, half-black co-wife, or her Sudanese husband, me. Halmani, which means grandmother in Korea, didn't speak much during the three-and-a-half-hour drive. When she spoke, it was only in Korean, and there were no gestures or explanations to clarify her to me or Chiasa. We reached Busan on Thursday afternoon. For security purposes, Halmani's driver slash bodyguard checked us into a new hotel before returning her to her apartment. It was on the beach where Kimi and I preferred to stay and which I paid for. Chiasa's face was filled with wonder. She was checking out our temporary home on the water where we would remain, we thought, for a few days. I moved all the luggage into our rooms as Chiasa walked off with Akimi, heading toward the water. She was making friends, which made me feel good. We had two rooms. Chiasa and Akimi decided to stay together and allow me to stay in the second room. I smiled, no problem. I had both keys. I took my run on my familiar route down on Hyundai Beach right before sunset. My body celebrated the return of the scent and sound of the ocean and the moist sand beneath my kicks as I moved rapidly, faster than a jogger, slower than a sprinter. My water and banana vendor was surprised at my arrival. Then his face switched and he welcomed me back. I made wudu and my prayer on the water before running back through the black sky on the gold sand 
with the colorful globs of light leading the way. Back in my room, I showered and dressed. I was surprised at the knock on my door. I walked over and opened it. It was Akimi, showered and changed. She was all blue. Her headscarf and her dress were both a deep, rich blue. The dark colors set off her dark eyes, which were outlined in a heavy black eyeliner. Those eyes looked mischievous and mysterious at the same time. Akimi is ready for dinner, she said in soft, perfect English, which made me smile. Aunt Nuchiasa had taught her that one line. The verb was in the right position. I pulled her inside and into me. I hugged her tightly and kissed her face and then her mouth. Her tongue welcomed me first. Then she bit me. After a swift, sharp pain, I could taste some blood in my mouth. I looked at her, and she smiled. The look on her face was half guilt, half self-satisfaction. Playfully, I snatched her up and turned her upside down, holding both of her ankles. Her scarf fell to the floor, and her hair was dangling. She giggled, and then I remembered that I had to be gentle with her. So carefully, I laid her down on the floor. I sat on the floor beside her. She was lying on her back. Are you angry, Akimi? I asked her. She responded in Japanese whispers while staring into my eyes with an intensity and no humor. I laid down beside her, facing her. She turned away from me. No love for my onaka? I asked her in English. She didn't turn to face me and wouldn't respond. I began to rub her hair gently and caress the back of her neck. She wouldn't turn, but I was listening carefully for her breathing to change. I moved my hand beneath her dress and began to caress her body. She must have been angry. She still wouldn't face me, so I tiptoed with my fingers all over her body. She was really trying to control herself. However, I knew it felt good to her. I know her body well. Then I decided the only way to get a reaction was for me to make her feel good and to suddenly stop. So I did. I stopped stroking her most sensitive spot. Her body was giving her true emotion away. I put my hand <clears throat> beneath her petite body and turned her toward me as soon as our faces met. She accepted my tongue into her mouth. Now we were tonguing passionately. She kept reaching for my hands. I kept moving them away from her. I would only give her my tongue. She went wild, crawled on top of me and bit my nose and my ear and my chin. We tussled. When she felt all of me, I kept her crushed beneath the weight of my hard body until she was breathless and moist and smiling and grateful and calm. I wiped her few tears with my fingers. I knew this was part of it all. She would be fine soon. She and Chiasa would become friends and helpers to one another. 
I would do whatever it took to make Akimi feel and know for sure that she wasn't losing anything. She definitely was not losing me. I knocked on their hotel room door. Chiasa opened it. She looked left and then right. Where's Akimi? She asked. She's in my room. She needs a new dress. Can you grab one for her? I asked. Chiasa looked at me for some seconds. I looked straight back into her. She went into the closet and picked out something for Akimi. She handed it to me. Pickle, pickle, she whispered with her hand over her belly. Me too. Give Akimi 20 minutes more, then we'll eat together. I'm so happy, Chiasa said. You don't know how much I missed eating meals with you. Sometimes I was so lonely I cried. My tears fell into my soup. My miso turned sour, she laughed. Then I wouldn't eat any more of it. She was searching me with her gray eyes. She was different, completely unique. She was so excited to have a meal with me. She still had not been kissed, caressed, or gone into. I knew her feelings had to be spreading out inside her. I knew she was making sacrifices for Akimi. Akimi, of course, had made a huge sacrifice for her also. Or perhaps it was all for me. Watching them laugh in a dim Japanese restaurant where we all three sat on the floor. Our legs folded beneath a low Japanese table was really something. They both looked so beautiful to me. They were both covered, smiling, eating, and enjoying. I, of course, had no idea what either of them was saying, and that was bugged out. I didn't care, as long as they were both mine. I needed the time to eat three Japanese dinners so the portions could add up to one normal-sized meal. I thought about Billy, the Senegalese, and laughed. Both Chiasa and Akimi stopped talking to each other and wanted to know what I was laughing about. Mind your business, I told them solemnly. Their faces showed the insult. Then they broke back into their own laughter. Friday morning, I got the call. Dong Hua and I exchanged greetings before he said, The results are in my hand. Jung Ho is Akimi's father. Akimi is Korean, 100% Korean blood. He was solemn, yet he had a trace of real excitement in his voice. I understand, I said. I'll explain it to my wife. Please, don't contact her about none of this. I'll handle it. We would like to come and pick her up from you. We'd like her to meet her father, Jung Ho, properly. Not today, I said. I'm going to have a talk with my wife today. Of course, we'll be ready for the ceremony tomorrow for Akimi's mother. How about tonight, then? It would be good if you and Jung Ho could make peace before the ceremony. I'll think about it. I'll call you later, I said. Contact me at the university. It's Friday all over again, so you know my schedule and exactly how to find me. I got it, I told him. We both hung up. 
I called their room. Chiasa picked up. I need to talk to you. I told her. I need to talk to you too. I have something to show you, Chiasa said. Where's Akimi? I asked. She's eating some leftovers from last night. She said she would go on the beach and do a drawing for hire since you and I are both fasting and she is not. She feels guilty about it, Chiasa revealed. She shouldn't. She should be in good health to have babies. She's already going through enough emotional changes. I wouldn't force Islam on her. It wouldn't be right. With her mind so cloudy and her emotions so scrambled, it wouldn't be sincere and wouldn't matter. Did something happen? Perceptive, Chiasa asked. Every day something's happening. I'll come over. After Akimi was situated on the boardwalk, the last strip of cement before the sand, Chiasa and I sat down on the steps nearby where we could all see each other comfortably. Akimi had already begun drawing, although she had no customer. I figured she was creating something to show her skill to a potential customer who might come along. She was at ease with Chiasa in the daytime. It was the nights that she wanted to belong to her. Wearing my shades that Sudana had gifted me, I told Chiasa, whose eyes were shielded by a floppy hat that couldn't fit properly over all her thick hair, the story of Akimi's family. In detail, I gave her all the missing parts that she had not known or discovered along the way. I even told her the truth about Naoko Nakamura, his background, and how I had suspected ever since I read the unauthorized biography that he might not be Akimi's biological father. When I told her about the paternity test results and that it had all been confirmed this morning, her mouth dropped open. So fucking crazy, she said. I'll need you to tell Akimi the entire story. No way, it's so personal, too touchy. Do you know how the Japanese feel about issues of purity and origin and status? She asked. Believe me, they have reminded me enough times that because I am what they call half, I am less and not Japanese. Fuck them, I said instinctively. I only care about Akimi. She has to know because it's the truth and I don't lie to her. I need you to tell her, explain it in detail. I'll be right there with you. If I could say it myself, I would. You only care about Akimi Ryoshi, Chiasa said, lifting my shades from my eyes. That's not what I meant. I meant... If it is a situation of being concerned about how the Japanese think about purity or how the Koreans feel about blood, I don't care about their prejudices. I care about how all of this affects Akimi, I clarified. I thought Chiasa began, and then I interrupted her. Sometimes don't think. Sometimes only feel. Sorry, Ryoshi. I'll do it. I understand. I'll do whatever you want me to do, really. That's how I feel, she said softly. She sounded true. That part about her mother being Korean and pretending to be Japanese, 
just to save a kini explosive. Chiasa exhaled. My mind is already beginning to assemble the right words to say it all, the best way, the softest way in Japanese. You know, for Akimi to be able to save face. What did you want to show me? I reminded her. Oh, it's in my pocket. I won't pull it out right now, she said, evading. What is it? Tell me, I pushed. It's a newspaper article about the attack on Nakamura's top security chief at the Shilla. <laughs> I smiled. What did they say? I asked. No suspects, she said. They just have a bunch of theories. It seems Nakamura has enough enemies that it's become too confusing for them. Why did you have a slingshot and a rock on you at a banquet? I told you, I always carry one, she said. Even when you're wearing a cocktail dress? Hi, she said instinctively. Where did you stash it? I asked her. She touched her breasts and smiled coyly. Then I won't ask you where you hid the ammunition, I said. She was giving me forbidden urges in the daylight hours, in the presence of my first wife. Did you know that Nakamura would show up there, I asked. No way, she said. I was on the balcony watching you and Daddy. I was watching to see if you two were making friends. I was so overwhelmed seeing you two talking and so excited that you actually married me. Then I saw Makoto. You know I have perfect vision, Chiasa said. I wanted to hug her. I didn't. three o'clock, we three went back to the hotel. I called them both into my room. Anyaseyo. I told them to sit. I had learned that Korean phrase from Professor Donghua. Akimi sat first. Jiasa followed. I sat behind Akimi and pulled her close inside my legs. Her back was to me. Her face was toward Jiasa. I pulled her shoulders back so that she would relax on my chest. I gave Jiasa the signal and slowly and softly in raspy Japanese she told Akimi the long story. A story that took just as long as it took Uma to tell me the story of her and my father's marriage. Jiasa was beautiful and gentle a problem solver not a problem she used her eyes and her voice and some sheets of paper with random kanji that she wrote while revealing it all it was a tragic story but Chiasa's voice still soothed and aroused me perhaps because I did not know the meaning of the words when Chiasa finished she asked me Ryoshi, can we make the prayer and have some water? Of course, I agreed. Chiasa said something to Akimi in Japanese. Akimi was still in a sad daze. The sun had set. I washed my nose, 
mouth and face, hands and feet first. Chiasa followed. We said the prayer together as Akimi lay on the bed. I phoned Donghua and told him that we should meet tomorrow at the ceremony. He gave me all the information. I wrote it down in my pocket-sized notebook. I left and got takeout and carried it back to my room for the three of us. Later, that same night, I grabbed Akimi up and took her to my bed. Chiasa had already gone back to their room. After the crazy night of being kidnapped and dropped into a war game, Akimi had licked my wounds, and now I would lick hers and rock her into a deep and comfortable sleep. At 11 p.m., I went out. Where are you going? Chiasa asked me when I knocked on her room door and asked her to stay with Akimi while I headed out. I'll be back. I told her. Chapter 24, Jenggu. I took a taxi to Busan University to the address printed on the flyer. When I had picked up the takeout, I had hit up I told him I would come through for him to be on point and to make sure that I didn't have any trouble with the campus police, or any police for that matter. When my taxi pulled up, someone was there to greet me. I'm young, he said, for Black Sea, right? He took me straight into the building where the party was happening. The lights were dimmed, but not off like in a Brooklyn party. The place was packed and the sound system was right. They were booming music. It was licensed to ill by the Beastie Boys. Although a few girls were dancing with girls, nobody had to tell these Korean cats to dance with the girls. They were on the floor, and most of the couples had rhythm. They didn't ride the female bodies like Brooklyn, but they came up close enough to feel the attraction and spit their game, whatever it was. Across the room, I could see Black C in the DJ booth, politicking, like he wanted to influence the DJ to spin the records he chose. His man was behind him, holding a crate of vinyl. I walked past Sarang, the black Korean girl from the record shop. She was leaning on the wall alone. She saw me and called out, Manager! I kept it moving. I don't talk to other men's women. They wouldn't have a chance to talk to mine. In the booth, I gave Black Sea a pound. We embraced. It was strange to see how happy my showing up at his jam made me appear, made him appear to be. You showed up, he said, smiling. Man, I appreciate that, he said, before introducing me as his chingu to all of his friends I hadn't met yet. I smiled to myself, wondering if, in translation, that was the same thing as Amir calling me Manega or Chris calling me brother. The DJ reached back in time and threw on some breakbeats. Black Sea gathered up his crew as different ones of them started stepping out from the crowds where they had been camouflaged. All the regular partygoers 
cleared out to make room for Black C and his boys to perform. I could tell they had made a name for themselves as the dance floor was now theirs and the crowd around them began to swell. The DJ threw on some electric funk. Hashim's Al Nafish. Black Sea's crew went to work, transforming into dancers dressed like homeboys, but whose bodies had five times more joints than the average human. He was dancing for his girl. I understood. She let him rock for a while before the beat lifted her feet from the floor and teleported her over to her man. She struck a pose, and her powerful body started moving in ways it didn't seem like her tight jeans would allow. Her whole body pulsating now. She wowed the whole room easily. She was the only African-Korean female, wasn't shy, and had more rhythm than the whole place combined. She spun on her black converses with the silver laces twisting her body. When she stopped spinning, her legs were interlocked like a New York pretzel. When she released them, she went into a move that finished with a headstand more daring than yoga with ten times the hype. She was all smiles. The fellas all begged her up, which led them to bigging Black Sea up. The Korean girls whispered in each other's ears and watched with no option to do anything else but to be amazed. Curtis blows super sperm. And the Fat Boys, Grandmaster Flash, Spoonie G, and the Sugar Hill Gang all got some burn before I got ready to break out. You're not playing with her, are you? I asked Black Sea when it was just me and him standing there. Nah, he said, borrowing from my way of talking. I'm not Yakusoku, he said like, I swear. I only stayed for half an hour. I only stayed for an hour and a half. I didn't mess with any girlies, not even the one or two trying to mess with me. Black C accompanied me out of the party, which wasn't over yet. His girl followed him into the light. When we got outside the door, I saw his bruises. What happened? I asked him. Oh, nothing, he said. It looks like something, I said. You said... I would have to fight for love. This right here is from Aboji, he said, meaning he got pounded on by his father. You introduced her to your parents? Yes, he smiled. What about that black eye, I asked him. He turned and pointed to his girl. Her little brother did that, he confessed. I guess I gotta teach you how to fight, I told him. How else will you make it in New York? He smiled. You don't look like a scientist no more, I joked. Good for you, I said. His girl was smiling also. I got a cab and went back to my wives. Chapter 25. Rest in peace. The ceremony was emotional. It was the same as if Drew Yoon, who had died years ago, had died just yesterday. It was not only heavy on my wife Akimi, but each person in attendance seemed weighed down with sorrow. I thought about the love that must be inside these people, 
even the ones who had not seen Ju Yoon since she was 15 years young, which was 16 years ago, seemed shocked and overwhelmed. I thought about how I knew more about Ju Yoon than many of the people gathered on the ferry where, sh- where the ashes were scattered in the sea. I thought about how uneasy a person would feel in their soul without knowing the missing pieces to a complicated story about someone they truly loved. I felt for the grandmother whose posture was solid like a wall but who still shed so many silent tears. She was Ju Yoon's mother. How much had she gone through? I thought about war. I thought about love. I thought about how the general had said there is no budget for the military. War is endless. Dong Hua stepped away from the side of his grieving wife and over toward me. His steps were steady, but the boat was rocking on the current of the sea. This is Jung you are seeing and hopefully also feeling right now. When we Koreans love, we love forever, no matter what. Our country has been warred on for thousands of years. Our people have been attacked, colonized, ruled by dictators. Our families have been under pressure. There have been many circumstances that have separated one Korean from another, even though we are separated by space and time, we are still loving that person and waiting or fighting or praying for their return. Whenever we are reunited, our love is as though they never left. They are welcomed back into the family and we continue on. He thought he was describing a love so thick and intense that it was exclusive to Korean people. Yet I had heard these words from my own father in the past. I had felt that kind of love from him and Uma and my entire family. I walk with that same kind of strong love myself. I didn't express that to him. I didn't think this was the time, but I understood what he was saying, the position he was in, the love he had for his own wife as well as his effort to welcome me while still defending his family from me just in case I matched a bad image that he may have held in his mind. The atmosphere moved me to shake hands with the Kimi's Korean father. I even spoke the word an apology for knocking him down to the floor and punching him in his face. I didn't feel like I lost anything as a man by apologizing to him. It was the difference between having the information and not having the information. If I had known he was her father, I would not have put my hands on him. But since I didn't know, I did. He wasn't focused on me. 
he accepted my apology. His hardened face revealed that he was a man with many worries, the least of them, the fight that we had. Akimi's young, sensuous eyes had seen so much. I knew her feelings and her experiences being born and raised in Japan as a Japanese girl and living and believing it was an incredible story that only she herself could ever tell precisely and properly and in her own soft voice and manner. Perhaps she would never tell it, opting to put it into a series of detailed drawings instead. I knew my wife's heart well. She was standing there on the boat as it rocked on the deep waters, still sorting out her love and anger for the only father she had ever known. Naoko Nakamura. I knew that she was surrounded by new faces of blood, relatives who love her, yet despite it all, she still loved Naoko. Meanwhile, her eyes were surveying and capturing the image and perhaps even the soul of her true blood father, Jung Oh. As I watched my first love, first wife's emotions churning, I knew I would be here in Busan for days longer than I had ever planned. A couple days later, Chiasa and Akimi had made their peace. Perhaps Akimi felt connected to her now because of the way that Chiasa took the time to explain so well the missing pieces of Akimi's life. Maybe it was because Chiasa held her hand and stayed by her side and slept in her bed beside her. Maybe it was because Chiasa and Akimi shared a common native language or because Chiasa was doing what Jasna might have done if she were here. Or maybe it was because Akimi could now see what I already saw in Chiasa. When Akimi asked to go and stay with Sun Yun and her grandmother for the remaining days before our flight back to the United States, I knew that was her gift to Chiasa. She would allow the inevitable to happen while surrounding herself with her grandmother's and aunt's love.